Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Brian Betts. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, how many of you guys played a sport at some point as a kid, whether it was bumblebee soccer or whatever it might be? How many of you guys played like high school or college sports of some point where it got a little more intense? Man, didn't we learn a lot about ourselves playing sports, about how we deal with winning and losing? Uh, for me, uh, I got the bug in elementary school. My teams were just good. I, went, I, went to, I grew up at Catholic school. I went up through 10th grade, so Catholic league, everything, baseball, basketball. Um, I got the bug because our teams were good enough, but never the champions. So I had something to strive for. And my freshman year at St. Anthony High School in downtown Long Beach, I made the varsity team uh, I got the last slot, and I got to go to CIF finals as a freshman, so that bug got even stronger. And then the very next year, they pulled us out of that league, and they put us into a league with St. John Bosco and other schools that were significantly larger than ours. If you don't know those things, uh, it's the equivalent of sixth graders playing against full-grown men. And we were the sixth graders. We got stomped every single race, meet, Basketball game, everything. We got destroyed, and I got to learn a lot about myself from there. We used to huddle before and pray. We'd all put our hands in, and someone would go, St. Jude, patron saint of lost causes. <laughs> and, and we'd all go, oh, pray for us. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an experience. Um, the other piece, because uh, I just realized I forgot to do an announcement, so I'm going to finish my story, then I'm going to do an announcement, and then we're going to talk about the text. I'm crushing it. Good morning to everybody online. Todd. Um, so I ended up playing sports as an adult as well. Uh, played a lot of hockey, and uh, some of my teams won championships at, the, at varying levels of, of competition, which was great. One of my teams went 0-20. Over two seasons, I learned a lot about how I handled uh, that. And it, just even in the throes of the games, I was known to partake in the stereotypes of hockey when things weren't necessarily going my way. Um, and, I, and, and sometimes it didn't go well in that either for me. Uh, and then it, I played ad league softball too. And in ad league softball, I, all the agencies from around Orange County get together and play against each other. And we had a fantastic team. I was the starting third baseman. I hit leadoff. It was a co-ed co team. It was so fun to bond with people. And every year going in the championship, we were the best team in the regular season. We cruised up to the championship. And for three years in a row, we played the same team. And for three years in a row, that team looked nothing like the team we had just beaten three weeks in advance because they brought ringers. They bust in these dudes who were 6'5", 220, and played college baseball. And it was so demoralizing to have to deal with this. It first started off with me playing at third and my friend at short. We'd turn to them and just go, whenever the guy from college who clearly didn't work in advertising would hit a 600-foot home run and we'd just watch it go over, we'd turn to each other and go, man, what do we, you know what? Hey, what department is that guy in? And at first they were like, um, accounting? By the time the third year went around, everybody knew. They weren't even hiding it anymore. And we'd even get a response, hey, what department is that guy in? We started to get snarkier every year. And they finally were like, he doesn't work at the agency. It's Jill and accounting's boyfriend. We, we bust him in. Like, they didn't even care anymore. And so I got to, to just deal with all of this process of, of how, how do I deal with opposition? How do I deal with what I believe is right and wrong in, doing, in, in competition and, and learning so much about myself? And that's a big part of what the text is going to talk about today. I mean, it is the focus of the text. The gospel is moving, and we run into opposition. 
This is where Luke locks in that for the first time, we're going to lock into opposition. And actually, things are going so well for me today, the clicker is sitting on the, on the pew, so I'm doing great. <laughs> Clearly, I had three, two, three sips too many of coffee this morning. Um, really quick, the announcement I was supposed to do, since now we have a clean break, uh, Two weeks from today, Todd mentioned a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago that we are going to be doing some outside services while we make repairs in here, and we are going to work on needed repairs for the ceiling. Uh, and so all the scaffolding in here, we will not be able to be in the worship center for Sunday, June 25th. Uh, the hopes is that and the plan is that we will be back in for July 2nd, the following Sunday, um, but we will be outside both services and live streaming. Uh, for Sunday, June 25th. So don't come in here. You won't be able to get in. We'll be down at Thingval reliving old memories together. <laughs> and we will let you guys know for some reason, if you've ever dealt with construction, if there's a delay and it's two weeks in a row, we'll figure that out. And then once we get that squared away, we'll let you guys know the rest of the plan as we continue to do additional uh, updates to seating and carpet and things like that. So now that my momentum is gone, if you remember back to 30 seconds ago, we are dealing with how the church interacted and how Luke captures their interaction with opposition. And it's all about standing like Jesus. What Luke is trying to get us to see in this text is that the unstoppable church lives bravely, putting the promotion of our Savior as our highest priority, including when that promotion faces opposition. It's easy to do things when they're going our way. How do we act? What do we do and where do we draw from our reasons for acting the way we do? So this morning, 31 verses. Uh, I'm going to read it all the way through, all at once, and then I'm going to simplify basically 1 to 22. Uh, and then we'll dig into 23 to 24 just a little bit more. So here we go. Ready? And they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And they, if you remember, Peter and John, they've been called out. They've, they've healed this, this lame guy, and the crowds are coming around wondering what's going on and who's doing this. And now the authorities have shown up to find out what's going on. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And when they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, Caiaphas is the guy who oversaw Jesus being put to death. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, he's going to deliver the gospel here, just like he did in chapter 3. Rulers and the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This is Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For, it, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They're drawing their line as the Jewish leaders. No more of this Jesus and his resurrection from the dead and his power. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This was a miracle. There was no way, no logical explanation why this guy who had been sick and lame for 40 years could have been healed. And when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they, being all the disciples, they believe about 120 of them, sort of the original core of that church that, that the Holy Spirit came down to for Pentecost. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for truly there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all these people against Jesus, to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Gracious Heavenly Father, there's a lot to take in, but, but at the core of it, is what you are preparing us for. You are preparing us that there will be and there is opposition. You are preparing us to understand who we are as a church, who we are in your son as the head of the church. So help us to see that today. Open our hearts and our minds to the things that maybe we're personally holding on to that could be encouraged this morning by looking at the words that you inspired Luke to capture. In your name we pray, amen. 
So here's the macro two big ideas in that text. If you saw it, it kind of kept going back and forth. There's tension, and then Luke captures that the Spirit's moving. Tension, and then Luke captures that the Spirit's moving. Let's start with the, with the good part, the positive part. The unstoppable church is always moving forward. In this passage, this is what Luke is trying to get us to see. That God is always calling people to himself. This is his plan to use this church to use people like us who are far from perfect to show off his glory as we are a unified body and God is working in our hearts all the time, drawing us to him. And as part of this, he's given us the spirit which is equipping us to get to participate in this experience. We get to be a part of God's plan for manifesting his glory as part of this church and the Spirit is doing a work in us. It's opening our hearts and our minds to do the same stuff we talked about with sharing the joy, to turn our lives around so that everywhere we walk around, we see opportunities to share who Jesus is. We see the people that are hurting, and we see all the conversations that open up opportunities to share the gloriousness of God's plan and the majesty of who Jesus is. What a great gift that we get to be a part of this. And because we understand this gift, we can't help but share our greatest passion. Verse 19, Luke captures it beautifully. Peter and John are inspired, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they turn when asked, or they're told, don't do this anymore. They respond back with, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, who do we listen to here, God or man? You must judge, for we, we who believe, we who understand, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What we know of Jesus, what we know of the resurrection, what we know of how our lives have changed, we can't not but want to share this with other people. For those at home who didn't hear that, we got a good amen. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> we can't help but give away what we have. And the other piece evident in this, in this tension, if you go back and read it on your own, or if you've been reading as part of our reading plan, you'll see there's almost four little stories. There's an issue, and then Luke gives encouragement, and an issue, and then Luke gives encouragement. It's really cool to see how, it conti how he continues to give hope in this opposition. But this opposition to the unstoppable church is always there. Now, we live in a place, Orange County in Southern California, we are spoiled. I don't know why, even as a kid, before coming to faith, I used to ask God all the time, how come there's places in the world where a kid like me gets to get up in the morning and wonder whether or not he's going to make it through the day? As a kid, I was always, I, I'd always heard about what was happening with Israel and Palestine. And I was like, man, those kids are getting up in the morning and they walk out of their house and they could be killed over their faith. How come I get to ride my bike to school to get trounced by a bunch of bigger, stronger men in sports? <laughs> there is opposition everywhere that we go. We have ministry partners out there who are working with folks in Nigeria. If you guys have heard of Boko Haram, it's a Muslim terrorist group, I always try and be careful with words in particular, but they are blowing up buildings and they are murdering families trying to establish a Muslim state 
in Africa. We have missionaries who are helping continue to pursue the gospel and get the word out there. We have folks, actually Brent Hoover in particular was in town this week for a couple of days. He's in, he's in Colorado right now leading some of the men that he leads. And he shared a couple of stories. I had a chance to sit with him like, hey man, we're talking about the opposition in Acts 4 today. Sort of encourage me, what's happening out there? What do we know the reality of opposition is? And he shared two stories. The first is that through the partnership of leader source who he works with, they have folks in the Middle East that they know of, Christian converts from, from being Muslim. One man in particular right now is sitting in a room being told, you move, we beat you. So when he falls asleep, they beat him. When he coughs, they beat him. They are trying to break his spirit and his soul and get him to renounce the gospel. They are threatening his wife and his family to break his spirit because they don't know the depth of what this man has experienced and he is sitting there and he is taking it. In Asia, we have pastors putting sermons online and being arrested for it. Two years in jail. There is opposition in the world we right now can't even fathom. So we are simultaneously grateful that we are spoiled being here and simultaneously I'd love a little bit of our hearts to always be with these guys who are going through this. And here's what Luke wants us to understand about why this stuff happens and why I believe that, that the thread that comes throughout the gospel comes throughout the Bible. The first is the, this, all, of this, all of these issues come from the fact that we live in a broken world. When we fell in the garden, when humanity decided to choose knowledge over trusting God, we were separated. And so the permanence of being in place with God and the warmth that fills our hearts of being in his immediate presence was broken. And it leaves a void and we spend our time here trying to fill that void. Now, we who have come to faith, big chunk of that void gets filled. We understand, we long for, we see, we get a little more of what that is. We're not perfect. We still chase things we're not supposed to. But a little bit of that void gets filled. And for people who don't have the gospel, they're filling it with whatever they can find. Their compass is all over the place, whether it's ego or comfort or money or power. They're filling their brokenness with something that they believe will make it right, will make themselves whole. And we as believers learn that that's not what's going to work. But it creates this tension, and in this tension, we have to live with this reality that those people with other views whether politically or religiously or whatever it might be, they live alongside us. Whether it's in Africa, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in Orange County, whether it's in Yorba Linda, we have people all the time with a different view who are gonna live around us. So we see the, how this view, these other viewpoints make their way into the rules we have to follow, into expectations of us in our jobs, 
into what's going on in our neighborhoods, whether it's our neighborhoods, our schools, whatever it might be. Patrick mentioned it. We see that people, Paul talked about it last week. He used the word ignorant. A lot of them don't know the depth of what they're doing. They're not malicious. Some people are. Some people are very aware, and that is what's happening. It's malicious. But some people, they're just ignorant. They don't know who God is. They don't have the picture. And so these other views make their way into our society, and that creates the tension and the opposition and the challenge that we face. We may not have what's happening. We may not in our own backyard have what's happening around the world, but we do have the things that we are paying attention to. And all of these things... Peter and John make obvious that this is happening all around us. In the exact same verse in which they plant their flag and say, we who know God know what we would choose between God and man, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. They state their point of view. We know who we need to listen to. They clearly state, you must judge. You don't have the same perspective, the same view, the same understanding of who God is, so you have to make these decisions. Even among them, they realize they're looking at a reality in which people aren't coming from the same place. So they set, here's, the, here's what we're both looking at. Who do we look to? Who do we treasure? What is our ultimate ends? And even to these people who genuinely believe, the Sadducees, who they genuinely believe they are adhering to God, Peter and John go, it's up to you to figure this out. And so this tension that gets created as people figure it out, as they, as they aim for things that they think are going to fill their lives, it takes us to this place that I think is incredibly valuable for us, is that our response to opposition tells us about what really matters to us. When we run into, as Christians, when we run into things that don't align with our value system, what does it do here? What does it do here? Do we get angry? Do we get hurt? Do we distance ourselves from those people? Do we embrace them? What are the motions? What are the things that are happening? Because God has given us this gift of the Spirit, and he's given us challenges in life to draw us to him. And in those experiences, we get a chance to see what those gaps still might be in our hearts for how we draw to him. Maybe when we assess the situation, it's about the gospel. And we have this righteous indignation that we want the gospel promoted above everything else. Or maybe when we really step back, the thing in front of us is actually affecting our comfort. And our response and our frustration, our anger is actually because we don't want to let go of something that makes us comfortable or something that, that insults our ego or our intelligence, hits our pride. All of this opposition against the church gives us a chance to figure out, we as the church, are we about us or are we about the gospel? And a lot of us aren't going to go stand in front of governments anytime soon and be called out for our faith. But we will sit with friends, and we will sit with neighbors and coworkers, and there will be a challenge to how we feel about sharing the gospel. 
and we will be held just as accountable in that space as if we were standing in front of, you name the world leader, the state leader, wherever you want to go. So we have this gift and in opposition, we get to learn about ourselves. And Luke, this is where I think Luke is absolutely brilliant. It's as if God inspired him. What he captures in verses 23 to 30, he captures this beautiful prayer that tells us this, that the unstoppable church stands lovingly for Jesus. And this is why this is so important that we get this. When we're not sure how to stand or why we're standing, to the outside world, we don't stand for anything. When we err on one side where everything is love and acceptance and everybody's good and there is no line at all, we don't actually stand for anything. We water down the gospel. We water down our need to be saved and redeemed. We water down the work of Jesus. And when we go to the other side, where we have such an excitement for the gospel that we want to fight, fight, fight for the gospel, to the outside world, again, they don't see the gospel in us. They just see anger. They don't see this love that's supposed to be there. And so whether it's over the top, extreme over here for love, or over the top, extreme anger, we don't stand for anything as a church. And this is where this text helps to plant us for an idea of where we stand. Like I said, it's absolutely beautiful. The first thing that Luke captures here in this prayer that the early church has is that they lived knowing that there was opposition. They're going to point out three things in their prayer right out of the gate. There was opposition in the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet, so there was opposition for Jesus. And there was opposition for them, too. So in their prayer, Peter and John come back and they tell their friends, guys, it is serious now. We have just been told, stop or else. They knew what that meant. They knew it was their lives. It wasn't going to be a slap on the wrist. You keep doing this, your lives are at risk. And the first thing they do when they hear this, this whole group, imagine this 120 plus group of disciples who have just been told, you keep doing what you're doing and we will lose our lives over this. And they go here, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They praise God and they say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, this is Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The nation of Israel, there was opposition and they knew it and they remembered it. And they continue from there and say, for truly in this city, because they're in Jerusalem right now, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all these people piling on in opposition against the one who God sent to save us. 
and they realize not only is there opposition, but it's done to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God put the opposition in to take place so that we could be saved and so that we might grow. And then they turn in verse 29 and say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. We are in just what everybody else has been in. Our lives are now at stake. We understand this is the case. Now, could you imagine if we as a global church, if we as a local church lived knowing there would be opposition? When I was playing hockey and I got blindsided, cheap shot, punched in the face from here when I didn't see it coming, whatever the stereotypes of hockey are that actually did happen, stereotypes come from somewhere. The reaction that I had was way different than when I was quarterback in the power play and I got to see everything happening in front of me. When we are prepared for the opposition, we handle it so different than when we're shocked and appalled that someone might be coming with a point of view that pushes back on our desire to share the gospel. And so instead of flailing at the surprise that there is tension, that there is opposition, we live rooted knowing that there will be those who push back, that there will be those that fight against us, whether they're principalities or whether they are friends. And we can handle it differently. We can handle it in stride. We can handle it thoughtfully. We can handle it as we stand lovingly. The next piece that he's trying to get us to see in their prayer is that we stand like Jesus. Now, easily said, we kind of get this, we understand what I love about this portion of Acts 4 is it spells out the life of Jesus in their prayer. They jump into the prayer, and the first thing that they do in this is they pray for boldness to make the gospel preeminent. And now, Lord, 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Guys, you're going to die if you go outside and tell people about Jesus, and the first thing they do is go, Lord, help us keep preaching your name. I'd like to think with my ego that when this moment comes, I will do the same. But man, that is, these are lives that are so different. Under threat of death, the first place they go is, let us walk, heads held high, and the gospel, the first thing on our mouths and the gospel, the only thing in our heads and our hearts. Let us keep pushing for the men that are sitting in a room in the Middle East being tortured, for the men in Nigeria who may not know if they're going to make it through the day because of the gospel or the opposition to the gospel, for the guy who is sitting in jail, about to get thrown into jail because he posted a sermon online. This is boldness. These are living, breathing truths that we can be proud of. And in our brotherhood, in our universal brotherhood and hope that one day we will get to be in heaven with these guys and we will get to meet them and see the gloriousness of what they experienced that we can draw from these stories and ourselves 
be emboldened by what's happening out there. It's an absolutely beautiful thing that they are doing. It is heartbreaking, but at the same time, it is so incredibly glorifying to God. The next thing that they grab on their prayer is they pray for Jesus to spiritually heal everyone. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Yes, there's a lame guy who got healed in this space. Yes, Jesus healed people physically, but he made it clear he healed them because he wanted them to see what God was doing so that they could turn their lives over to God, trust him fully, and be saved. And so we as believers, when we face opposition, should break our hearts that this opposition doesn't know the gospel. We should yearn for them to be saved. The people who in the pit of our stomach just, oh, we don't like them. They should be the ones we're praying for the most. And then you have all these people caught in the crosshairs too. You've got people you got people who are opposing the gospel, you got people for the gospel, and you've got all these people in the middle that don't really have an opinion, that don't even know what's going on. And this opposition is keeping them from being saved. It might be pulling them over to that side. It might be keeping us from being able to share the gospel. And it should absolutely break our hearts. We should want everyone to be saved. We should want God to be able to do what he can do for everyone. And that's the next point. That they actually believe that God is working. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They believe that God can, in any way he desires, do his thing. He's working through broken people who can only have this passion and this understanding, this eloquence that the Sadducees were dumbfounded at because of who God is, because we have the Spirit working in us. This is absolutely incredible to have this mentality. And I love that it's Peter is the main voice in this because y'all remember what Peter did in the face of opposition in the Garden of Gethsemane? He pulled a sword out and he chopped off a dude's ear because Jesus needed him to defend it. You think Peter understood it at that point? And here we are in Acts. And he's saying, guys, it's getting serious. And he's part of the prayer for boldness. And what I love is that in 1 Peter, he gives us a picture of where he has truly gotten to spiritually. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be the emperor is supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, the people that are oppressing us, the people that are pushing back, the people in opposition. We treat them well 
so that they have no ground to stand on. And do y'all know how Peter, his life here on earth finished? Crucified by Emperor Nero, who is killing Christians by the thousands. See those last three words? He knows this is coming. He knows he will die crucified painfully and he tells everybody I get this now I understand that God can do anything he wants in any way he wants even if it means our death God will use it to promote the gospel we're going to talk about it soon with Stephen not that Stephen Stephen Huggins is sitting right there when Stephen is put to death for the gospel God can use any circumstance whatsoever. And Peter gets it to the point that he adheres to believing that God is truly in charge. And he says, honor the emperor, the man who will have him murdered over his faith. Man, how encouraging that we get in the gospel, in the scripture, this chance to see what we can be as Christians what our fathers in the faith helped to establish for us. And the last part is that we stand with love. We hear it all the time, we stand with love. I talked earlier about the extreme example of it. Peter's given us a glimpse, and then there's nobody better than to hear it from than this guy. Jesus, in Luke 6, he's just finished the Beatitudes, he's explaining how the kingdom works. He says, but I, but I say to you who hear... We've heard that before, right? That easy? How does that work as the way to win when we live in a society, you talk to anybody, what do they tell us? You have to stand up for yourself. You have to put you first. You have to be your own advocate. You have to fight for what's yours. This whole passage, I don't find that anywhere. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. In spite of the opposition, we tap into the love that we have received from Jesus and we express that in a way that we hope the rest of the world sees it so that the unified church would stand for something unique and incomprehensible to the way the rest of the world works. We get such a gift here, guys, to be part of this. We get to be the weirdos. We get to be the ones that it makes no sense why we live the way that we do. And we get to do it so that God, the creator of the world, would be glorified. And so that other people would have their lives changed. And when we accept Jesus and the Spirit dwells in our lives we get this gift to be emboldened to be part of this.
Now, I'd be remiss if I talked about the loving piece because it always begs the question, well, do we ever draw the line somewhere? Where do we stand up? What do we do? So for RCC, I want to make sure that we're clear in this. We will do this lovingly, but we will draw the line. Here is where we draw the line. If authorities demand that we pledge our highest allegiance to anyone other than God, we, RCC, will stand up against that. If the authorities ask us to participate in the defamation and harm of others, we will stand. If they ask us to modify the content of the gospel, who God is, who Jesus is, who gets in, who doesn't, what sin is, all the pieces in there that can be manipulated in their eyes, we will stand. We will not waver on the gospel. And if they ask us to stop sharing Jesus, we will not stop sharing Jesus. We will stand. Now, I know the last couple of years, it got kind of fuzzy and gray, and we weren't sure about what this would look like sharing Jesus, but we are privileged and blessed in a place that we have podcasts and streaming and YouTube and all kinds of other ways to get the gospel out, and we were not told, stop preaching the gospel. For us, that moment has not come. But if it does, we will stand. But until then, and even then when it happens, we live knowing that there will be opposition, our heads held high and ready and prepared, just like we practice in sports to be ready for the game. We will pray to be prepared for the opposition to the church so that we will be ready to deliver our stance as God intended, and we will stand like Jesus. We will stand boldly with our eyes on God's glory. We will stand with a heart for the lost. With confidence that God wins. Guys, this is the biggest one. When we are not rooted with confidence that God wins, it detracts from our ability to love. It detracts from our ability to stand. It detracts from everything about us. When we don't think that God will actually win, when we get the little pings of nervousness, it's another reminder, draw closer to God and believe in who he is. Because we already know the end of this. God wins. God wins. No matter what happens to us individually, God wins and he has promised us to be reunited with him when we trust him. We get the best gift no matter how it gets delivered to us. We get the best gift by trusting him fully. And the way we express that is that we express that with the same love that we have been given. That same love that Jesus gave to us who didn't deserve it. Who in our brokenness, in our struggles, I didn't come to faith till I was in my 30s. I had 30 years of not trusting God, of not understanding the differences, of making stupid decisions, of siding with people in the opposition at times until I fully got this. So it's our opportunity as a church 
to let this soak into our lives and understand this and walk with our heads held high. So this week, I'd love for you, if you want to take your 938 alarm and take a break from praying for laborers for just a little bit, or you can pray for both. Hey, do you know there's 24 hours in a day for prayer? There's lots of room, lots of options to pray. But this week, and take a picture of that. Don't try and write it all down. If you have a phone, take a picture of it. It's totally okay. But Monday, pray for those who do not have the same freedom. Pray for our brothers around the globe who are being tortured as we speak. Lift up your voice to God. That these men and their families would be part of this experience of being who and what the church is. On Tuesday, pray for those who oppose the gospel. Think of names, and if those names make you angry, pray for them. It's a great test to figure out who opposes the gospel. If they push your buttons and you wonder whether or not they see the world as God, you should be praying for them. On Wednesday, pray to be prepared for the opposition to have our heads held high, to be ready to go when we are called to stand. Thursday, that we be bold, and that Friday, that we stand lovingly like Jesus. And then on Saturday morning, open back up to this passage, 24 to 30, and read this beautiful expression of how we approach opposition to the gospel. This is the foundation of the church and how they stand. And they stand with eyes on God fully and exclusively. So gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this picture of what is to come. Thank you for this picture of those who have delivered us to you through their faith. You have spoiled us. You have spoiled us by moving in lives that give us an example. You have spoiled us currently As we prepare, you have given us time to prepare for the opposition. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving the church, us individually and us corporately. And we pray that we will represent your church to the world. That in opposition, we will stand for something that is unique and compelling and life transforming because we see your son, we see your plan, and there is nothing greater than we want to believe in. In your name we pray.